Heavenly Father, you are good and all of your judgments are just. You are perfect and holy. All that you do and all that you are is righteous and true. Father, this life does not make sense to us. The haze of our sin has made it difficult to see the big picture. We suffer from doubt and disbelief, but even more, we intentionally turn our back to you, the source of light and life. Father, we repent for not turning toward you. We repent for putting ourselves on the throne and not giving you the honor and worship that only you deserve. When we see chaos, war, and famine, we can be sure that it will someday end with your victory over them. Give us that hope in an eternity with you. You have given us assurance of your salvation by the presence of your Holy Spirit. Remind us by your spirit of your love and goodness that our faith in you might increase. Father, we are thankful this morning for the arrival of Stevie Lou Schmidt. We pray for this, the Schmidt family, that you would give them rest and a smooth transition this season. Lord, I pray also for all the folks in our church who are single and perhaps desire to be in a relationship. Father, we pray that your will would be done in their lives and that as a community of believers, we would support and care for each other. May we all find our primary identity in you alone, Jesus. Father, we lift up those who are dealing with ongoing illness. We pray that you would bring swift healing and peace. Give us eyes to see how we can meet each other's practical needs. We are grateful this morning for the gift that the deacons of this church are to the congregation. Give them energy and endurance to continue their good work. We pray for the Branch Church in Corvallis and Pastor Doug Payne. We're thankful that they preach the gospel in that city. May you grant them faith and endurance. We pray also for Pastor Marcel again, Lord. Give he and the other pastors in that area courage and peace in the midst of government instability. We long for the day when you gather the saints from all nations into one kingdom ruled by you alone, Lord. Father, we have set aside this time out of love and obedience to you. May the study of your word help us to understand your character and increase our faith in you. Give Hans your heart and your words this morning as he preaches. We love you, Jesus, because you first loved us, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tyler. You may have a seat. You can open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 6. Revelation 8, 6 through 13, as we continue through the book of Revelation. How many of you remember the first time that you flew? Anybody? Yeah? Now, was anyone else taken aback by the announcement about what to do if the plane crashed? Was anybody else, was that a shock to anyone the first time you flew? I was 12 years old the first time I flew back in the 90s. And I don't know which was more shocking to me, the fact that the stewardess got up and announced to us what we should do in case the plane crashed, or the fact that as I looked around at all the adults that were supposed to know what they were doing, none of them seemed to care. You guys ever notice this on a plane? They didn't even acknowledge the announcement of what was happening or what to do if the plane crashed. Now, here I am 30 years later, having flown many, many times over the years, but I still to this day marvel that no one pays attention to the flight attendants when they make those announcements. One would think that how to survive a plane crash would be the most important thing a person could hear as they board a plane. Yeah? One would think that this would be the most important thing, but in reality, most of us never pull out the card or pay attention to the announcements. Maybe we've been lulled into a false sense of security. Or we have convinced ourselves that it will never happen to us, and the announcement just simply continues as a lull in the background. Announcements are like that, though, aren't they? They often either cause us to sit up and take notice and act, or if we dismiss them enough, often we no longer hear them and are shocked when the thing that they're announcing comes to pass. What a perfect picture this is of the rebellion of mankind. We're surrounded and saturated with announcements of God's existence and his power, and yet we ignore him and push the fact of his existence aside so that we might conduct the business of our own kingdoms. Our own conscience and the created world in which we live are constantly pointing us to the creator, and yet, as a rebellious humanity, we largely dismiss those announcements 
We harden our heart towards his authority in our lives. Our text this morning will take this idea and make it crystal clear as we see the beginning of what are called the trumpet judgments. Now, in biblical theology, trumpets were always both a herald of something to come, but also a call for action. In some cases, the blowing of a trumpet would announce the movement of the camp of Israel. In some cases, it would call them to convocation of worship. Maybe it would call them to arms or warfare. And these were intended to incite an action on the part of the people, these trumpets. And our text in Revelation is no different. These first trumpets, like the first seals that we saw a few weeks ago, will symbolize current judgments of God that come against a creation that rebels against him. They are the result of God giving us over to our rebellion slowly but surely. And these current judgments are an announcement and a reminder of his power as the providing creator God, as well as a herald of his assured victory to come. And so this morning we will see the truth that God's current judgments announce his providential power and assured victory. If you've taken down notes, I know that's a long title, but that's our title for this morning. God's current judgments announce his providential power and assured victory. These judgments will call for us to repent and trust in God as our creator and provider, and they will warn us that his kingdom will triumph. But for us who are believers, this should be a great source of peace, a great source of comfort and a strength in trying times. Unfortunately, like passengers on a plane dismissing the safety announcements, the unbelieving world is not listening, and I fear even some in the church are not listening. But that doesn't stop God from sending forth his announcements in grace and mercy to wake us up from our slumber. So let's begin to unpack all of this as we read our text this morning in Revelation 8, 6 through 13. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Makes perfect sense, right? You guys ready? You can head out? Yeah. Now, the first thing that we see right away in verse 6 is seven trumpets announcing God's assured military victory. I joked with Nick that I felt like I was writing some kind of a Christmas song here because we're going to talk about seven trumpets, four plagues, and three woes, and a partridge in a pear tree. But how we need to break this down is really important. This first thing that we see, seven trumpets announcing God's assured military uh, triumph. All of these, all of these pieces of imagery, as we've seen through Revelation, are meant to hearken us back to Old Testament symbolism. And remember that we're looking at Revelation through this lens of progressive recapitulation. I'm going to make you guys say it again. Say progressive. progressive. Say recapitulation. recapitulation. Now, this idea is hard to comprehend, so the idea I want you to walk away with is this idea we've been talking about of a corkscrew. A corkscrew movement looking at the same events from different angles. It'll hit the same events again and again as we go, go through the corkscrew. But as we go forward through it, we're going to hit each with greater clarity and more intensity. Okay? And so with this in mind, we can look forward in Revelation. And we can see in Revelation the ultimate action to which all of these judgments, including the trumpets, will lead. They will lead to the great white throne judgment of God. But moving back on the corkscrew a little bit from that, we'll hit chapter 18, and that corkscrew becomes quite clear at what will happen. And what will happen is the fall of a great city known as Babylon. 
This is the event that we see with great clarity and intensity. But if you move backwards a bit up that recapitulated view here to chapter 8, we find that the fall of the city is preceded by seven trumpets being blown. Now, what imagery in the Old Testament do you find your mind flowing to when you think of seven trumpets sounding resulting in the fall of a city? Anyone? Say it out loud. Jericho, very good. You guys are Bible scholars. Jericho, the imagery is meant to point us to Jericho. Would you turn with me back to Joshua 5? Go in your Bibles to Joshua 5. And we'll look at Joshua 5 through 6. And you can read through this in your study time this week on your own. I'm going to hit just a few points here. But you remember this story. Most of you saw it with felt boards back in Sunday school, right? Or Veggie Tales gave you a kind of twisted view of it a little bit. But the covenant had just been renewed. The most recent generation of Israel had just entered over the River Jordan into the land of Canaan. And the time of wandering in the wilderness was over, and it was now time for a military campaign to begin. And there by Jericho, the commander of the Lord's army, most likely an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, shows up to strengthen Joshua, to let him know that victory was assured. That this group of people who had just been enslaved and barely had a tool to their name or a weapon, that they would be victorious. And for six days, there would be a processional that would walk around the city walls once each day. There would be priests and the men of war and the Ark of the Covenant with Yahweh following with them. And the seven trumpets would be blown continually during the march. Now, what was the point of this long and somewhat odd pause before the full victory? Why wouldn't they just go right in? What well, was to give time for people within the city to repent and turn to Yahweh? Look with me at Joshua 5.1, right at the beginning. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." Now, these tribes had heard of the God of Israel. Jericho had heard of the God of Israel. They'd heard the stories of his victory over Egypt at the Exodus. They'd heard of their salvation through the waters. And they'd even heard that God had repeated this miracle closer to home with the Jordan River so they could enter the land. And yet, with all these amazing things, their hearts did not repent. They simply melted. Rather than turn from their idols, they simply got fearful and stuck to their idols. On the seventh day, the people of Israel would do the same. They would march around the city seven times, this time seven instead of one. And interestingly enough, they were told that it wasn't the trumpets that would destroy the walls. They were merely announcing what was coming. It would be the communal shout of the people that would actually cause the walls of Jericho to collapse and the city to be overcome. But before that collective shout, Joshua tells them that there will first be a moment of silence. Take a look at Joshua 6.10 with me. Joshua 6.10. Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. Now imagine it with me. For six days, you're inside the walls of Jericho. You've heard the might of Israel because of their God. Fear has overcome you, and then one day you hear the watchman yell from the outposts that Israel has come and surrounded the city. Then for six days you hear them blow their horns continually as they walk around. For six days you are given the chance to repent, and yet you don't. Perhaps even you've grown so used to the trumpet by the sixth day that you've convinced yourself that since nothing bad has happened yet, that maybe the army of the Lord will never actually invade. Maybe judgment will never come. But then the seventh day is different. Rather than simply one time around, you listen as the trumpets go around the city seven times. And just when you're wondering what is going on, absolute dead silence. It's broken only by a massive shout of all the people of Israel as if the thunder of heaven has come down. And the walls that surrounded you, all the defenses that you put up to keep you away from them and their God, they instantly crumble. The fullness of the announced judgment has come. Look with me at how it ends in 615. 
On the seventh day, they arose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold, every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city. Every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. The story ends with God's covenant people in victory, having overtaken the enemy city. The people of Jericho and the surrounding pagan cities were devoted to destruction and judgment. And yet, God's graciousness is seen beautifully in this story with the woman Rahab. For she had been a woman who was living a lifestyle opposed to God's righteousness among a rebellious people who had no allegiance to Yahweh and were perverse in their worshipful practices. And yet in God's grace, he called her out of that people and to allegiance with him so she would be saved from the wrath and judgment to come. This is the imagery that's being called upon when we think of seven trumpets about ready to be blown in Revelation 8. With this story and its themes running in the back of our minds, go ahead and turn back to Revelation 8. We start to see this recapitulated view of God's triumph taking shape in Revelation. In Revelation 7, we saw the army of God's elect gathered and sealed, 12,000 from every tribe, an army ready to go to battle. And now in Revelation 8, we're starting to hear the seven trumpets being blown, signaling that something is taking place. A military campaign is calling the people of earth to give their allegiance to the Lord away from idols and to repent. But rather than repent, we saw in Revelation 6 that they would rather stand firm in rebellion and call upon the rocks to crush them. The hearts of the earth dwellers, like those in Canaan, would rather melt than repent. And then Revelation 8.1, if you recall last week, told us that before the last final judgment, there is an eerie silence, and then the fullness of God's judgment. Friends, John is using all this imagery to paint for us the idea of seven trumpets announcing God's assured military victory and triumph, a triumph that will end with judgment of the unrighteous enemies of God and salvation of those made righteous in the blood of the Lamb. And already our text, even in the first verse of our text this morning, our application becomes apparent. Friends, we need to ask the question of whether or not we are paying attention to God's announcements. Are you a person who has pushed aside the conviction of your conscience and the evidence of all creation, the evidence that there is a creator God? Have you pushed aside the fact that the word says that he will come again one day to judge every part of creation? If you are hearing the announcements of God calling you to give your life over to him through Jesus Christ, don't dismiss them anymore. If you are a person who has heard the gospel time and time again, you've sat in the church time and time again, and yet you still hold back, wondering if these things will ever come to pass, this text is for you. It's calling you to repent. For the day is coming when all the things you have used to dismiss and disregard your creator will no longer protect you, and you will stand before him in judgment. And through his son, Jesus Christ, God has provided a way for you to be forgiven of your rebellion against him or at bare minimum, your dismissal of him. And he's done that through his son, Jesus. Don't wait for one more trumpet to be blown. Don't wait for one more announcement of conscience. For as we will see, the longer one waits to repent and turn to Christ, the harder your heart will grow towards God. Let's listen now as the announcements of God's providential power 
and assured victory grows stronger as the trumpets are blown. Let's read again the first trumpet. The first angel, verse 7, blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of the water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. In these verses, we see four plagues proclaiming God's providential power and triumph over idolatry. Four plagues proclaiming God's providential power and triumph over idolatry. The triumphant imagery continues here, but now John the Revelator hearkens back a bit further in Old Testament symbolism and starts pulling from Exodus. This fits really well with the first half of chapter 8, as we learned last week, but this is even more direct, using the same tools of judgment that were used upon Egypt in order to eventually bring redemption to Israel. With each plague, there will be judgment that comes from the heavens, resulting in a certain form of destruction. But as we will see, these four types of destruction and judgment have been happening throughout the church age. This is not speaking of some apocalyptic event in the future. These things have been happening since the beginning of the church age. You might say, how, Hans? Well, just keep following with me. They're not relegated to some specific time in the future. The first trumpet ushers in the plague of hail and fire from heaven, mixed with the foreboding image of blood all thrown upon the earth, and it results in the vegetation of the land being burned up. This is reminiscent of the seventh plague that was used upon Egypt. And each of these trumpets will be reminiscent of one of the plagues. The first plague, you can go back and read it on your own time this week. The first trumpet is reminiscent of Exodus 9, 22 through 26. Hail and fire from heaven that burned up the vegetation. The second and third trumpets usher in the plague of undrinkable water. It results in the oceans becoming like blood, the marine life being killed, and maritime trade and economic prosperity being brought to a standstill. In the third trumpet, it is the drinking water upon which societies rely that's made bitter. John uses this funny Greek word that is translated wormwood in the English. Basically, all it means is bitterness or poison. And this is reminiscent of the first plague that was used against Egypt. You recall that one where he took his staff and touched the Nile and it turned to blood. Out of Exodus 7, 20 through 25. The fourth trumpet affects not the water or the land, but the heavens and the sources of light. It results in a darkness overtaking the land. And this is reminiscent of the ninth plague used against Egypt in Exodus 10, 21 through 23. Go back and reread them. You'll see exact similar language and imagery. For the sake of time, we're not reading through them, but you guys get the point. Those of you that have heard of these plagues and read these before. Now notice that there are repetitive themes with each of these. Each originates from the heavens, almost as if otherworldly. Hail and fire, a great mountain burning with fire, a great star from the heavens, and heavenly bodies themselves being struck, all speaking of the source of these judgments as from the heavens. In other words, divine wrath. But then, even in that divine wrath, it is to be measured rather than complete and full, just like the plagues in Egypt. The phrase, a third, is used 13 times in these few verses. And this argues for the use of symbolism over literal interpretation. For how could a third of the rivers or the heavenly bodies be struck, but not the other two-thirds? This language speaks not of a very practical report of what occurred, but it speaks of measured judgment by God in response to the idolatry of mankind. Now let's pause for a moment here, though, and talk about this idea of idolatry and how it relates to the specific plagues poured out here in Revelation. For today, mankind is so far down the rabbit hole of its own pride and belief that we are our own provider 
that I fear we hear idolatry, and many of us in 2022 immediately dismiss it because most of us don't have little statues on our mantle to whom we pray. Many Christians, contemporary Christians, think, well, at least I'm not an idolater. But to understand what idolatry is, we have to begin with the idea that the God of the Bible is the ultimate providential provider. Our God is the ultimate provider. In other words, he is the source. There is no source beyond him. Our word provider comes from the Latin providere, providere, which means to see ahead, to foresee. It's innate to the idea of God that he is the one who sees ahead. And so because he sees ahead, he has provided for our needs ahead of when we need them. He alone has provided food and water and land and light and breath. To Israel, he was the one that provided land for them in which they could worship him in covenant union. But then that idea also moves over to what is called providence. Everybody say providence. God foresees and is the ultimate primary cause behind the events of the world, especially on the level of macro-level disasters. And ultimately, this providence speaks to his protection of his people in the midst of suffering that he allows to draw humanity close to him in repentance. He uses the suffering the world goes through to call them to repentance. Now, there is a ton of nuance to this with regard to any and all events, especially personal suffering, because there are secondary causes of suffering, such as the work of Satan and his minions, or free agency of man and hatefulness towards one another. But friends, that is for another teaching. I don't have time for that today. But rather than look to God as the provider and rather than seek his providence, mankind has dismissed him and built up idols made in our own image. Most prevalent today is the idol of self and the idol of how much knowledge we as mankind hold. Rather than look to God in repentance when bad things occur, we explain them away in human terms and believe that we can ultimately fix the broken state of creation. For centuries, mankind knew and accepted that only God could ultimately restore creation, and this was core to what is believed about God. But now, only in the last few hundred years, have we disregarded this notion of providence as archaic, mythological, and hateful, and instead started propagating the idea that mankind can fix its own problems. And this has crept even into the church. So few Christians anymore are founded in the providence of God. Now, this idolatry would rise up with every new advancement of a civilization. It would rise up with the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, and most of all, in the rise of Western civilization. And so when idolatry, which results in a dismissal of God, rears its head, God, in his grace and his mercy, announces through judgment that continuing in this idolatry is destructive and just not a good idea. And he's done this throughout time with natural disaster. The most obvious of these judgments is when Egypt had gotten a bit full of itself in its idolatry of nature and its advancing empire, so much so that they would not allow the Jews to go free. And so the plagues in Exodus were used by God very specifically to delegitimize the power of the idolatrous nature gods of the Egyptians and the Egyptians' own prideful confidence in themselves. Each plague was a rebuke, an attack against the false Egyptian god that in their mythology reigned over a portion of the natural order. It was a rebuke to the trust that the Egyptians placed in their own knowledge and their own systems. These plagues were intended to tell the idolatrous Egyptians that their gods were in fact powerless and they needed to turn instead to the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By destroying these sources and resources of water, light, vegetation, and livestock, the God of Israel was proving that he alone was the provider of these things. He alone was the provider of food and of water and light. He alone was and is the providential power. But rather than humble Egypt and cause them to turn in repentance, you guys recall the story, 
The plagues of Egypt actually hardened Pharaoh's heart and the hearts of the people against the God of Israel, and they poured more into their idolatry. Some of the time it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and some of the time it says that God did so through the plagues. There was this intermingling. The plagues caused Pharaoh, rather than to repent, to harden his own heart. You see, friends, how we respond to these divine announcements of God's judgment will often show whether our hearts are being humbled and drawn towards God or hardened against him. Now that we have this idea of the interplay between idolatry and providence and God's merciful judgments in mind, let's look back at Revelation 8. John is using this imagery from Exodus in the midst of the trumpets to communicate this same contrast of God's providential power versus mankind's rebellious idolatry of nature and arrogance of self-provision. But in Revelation 8, they're, far more, they're for far more than just Egypt. He's using this imagery to look at the entirety of the idolatrous world. You see, the sin of the idol-worshiping pagan nations was that they did not recognize God as the creator and provider. The very creation around them required them to admit the presence of a transcendent being. Guys, where did all this come from? Evolution? Okay, where did the first thing that evolved come from? The backs of crystals. Okay, where did the crystals come from? Well, maybe two particles bumping into each other. Okay, where did the particles come from? There has to be a provider. There has to be a source. Our very creation around us requires us to admit the presence of a transcendent being that is outside of creation and that reigns and rules over that creation. All of Genesis 1 speaks to this very fact that God is the provider. He made it, it was good, and it was provision. He is the providential power. But rather than submit to that truth, mankind has ignored God and turned the creation itself into the divine being and elevated ourselves to the position of God by making idols of our own creation to whom we could bow down and worship, really in essence bowing down to ourselves. And Paul uses this very imagery and this charge of guilt in the book of Romans. Would you go there with me? Romans 1, and we're going to look at 18 through 25. Give me an amen if you're there. Amen. Romans 1, 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth? That there is a God and that he is the providential power. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let me give you an example, guys. When you want to fry up that nice burger, where does it come from? Most people go to the grocery store. Where'd the grocery store get it from? The farmer, the butcher, right? The butcher and then the farmer behind him. Where did the farmer get it? Well, from the cow. Where did the cow come from? Another cow. And eventually, we're not doing the chicken egg thing here, Kelton. Eventually, where did the cow come from? God, right? Where does everything you get come from? Amazon, right? No. Where did Amazon get it from? The supplier. And where did they get it from? And where did they get it from? And where did they get it from? And where did the materials come from? The earth. Where did that come from? God. You see how we have deadened ourselves so much that we think that God isn't alive, God isn't around, God doesn't exist? We've become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. So what happens? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice what happens next. Therefore, because of all this, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
Now, notice something with me. Paul wrote Romans around 57 AD, 40 years or so before Revelation. And notice the tense that he uses in the very first verse. The wrath of God is revealed. Not will be someday in the future when the great tribulation comes. The wrath of God is revealed. It's being revealed from heaven. In 57 AD, Paul used the present tense In 95 AD, when John wrote Revelation, John was not predicting something to happen thousands of years later. He was speaking of something happening in real time and that would continue to happen until the return of Christ. God announcing his wrath so that mankind might repent. John is using apocalyptic imagery in Revelation 8 to reveal the truth That when disaster occurs on earth, when trial and tribulation comes, they are part of the divine wrath being poured out on the rebellious, idolatrous earth. And these events have been happening over the course of the church age to get men and women to repent and turn to the truth of the gospel. These trials are intended to get humankind to admit that they have sinned, that we have sinned in rebellion against our creator God and are in need of repentance and submission to his providential power. But the plagues pictured here show what happens to our arrogant world when God removes his provision. Back with me in Revelation 8, if you'd turn back there with me. What if God destroyed our crops and the grass used to feed livestock? Mankind rebelliously responds that we would simply import other food over the economic thoroughfares, here pictured by the seas and the ships that travel across them. But what if these routes were cut off and the ships destroyed? What if the economy, the very economy, started to tank? Well, then we would maybe have famine for a while, but at least we would have water. But what if that was even poisoned? And not only that, what if God removed the very light that we use to work and play and live? What if we were simply in perpetual darkness? Now, I think that many of us as Christians would like to believe that we think of God as provider, but I want you, personally, to look back and remember your response the last few years when the water supply of Salem was tainted, when we suffered great drought and fire. What happened the last few years when our grocery store shelves started to become more bare? Did we all turn to God as provider, realizing that without him we are destroyed and the very trials we are going through are most likely judgment from heaven, telling us to repent? Did we get on our knees in prayer and worship of our provider and confess our rebellion towards him? Did we share with those we love that these are God's merciful judgments calling us to repent? Or did we carry on ignoring the divine announcements sent our way, fearful that to say the disasters of these proportions are God's judgment on a Christ-rejecting world would seem unkind or anti-scientific. As the world gets smaller and resources get more limited, isn't it interesting that mankind, rather than repent, gets worse in relying on our self-deluded idea that we have built systems that can't fail? The height of this imagery, as we will see in Revelation, is captured in the city of Babylon. Babylon in its day was the height of advanced civilization. From its birth in the book of Genesis as the capital of spiritual rebellion, it is used throughout the Bible as the premier symbol of mankind's rebellious delusion that what we have created cannot fail and that we are our own saviors. And we'll see this uh, imagery brought back up later in Revelation as Babylon is pictured as the city that will fall, as we noted earlier. But look at some of the imagery that's used even in the prophet Jeremiah to picture the destruction of Babylon in judgment and how similar it is to what's being stated here in Revelation. This is from Jeremiah 51. It says, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. No stone shall be taken from you for a corner and no stone for a foundation, but you shall be a perpetual waste, declares the Lord. I wonder if we, as Westerners and as Americans, need to take stock 
of our arrogance and confidence in systems that we think cannot fail. Does this sound familiar? Back in Revelation 8, John is interweaving apocalyptic imagery from the Battle of Jericho, from the Exodus plagues, and from the destruction of Babylon to proclaim that he has judged the human systems and kingdoms of this earth and found them wanting. All of this language is language of judgment that is meant to call the unrighteous to repent of their idolatry and turn to God as provider. Friends, God doesn't need to do these things at some point in the future where giant comets come out of the solar system to make us repent. We can't even repent now. And our actions as humanity, even among the church, declare that we are nothing more than humanists who believe that we are God and that we can bring ourselves salvation and safety and redemption of creation. Brothers and sisters, we place far more trust in the creation than we do in the creator, and we need to repent. We don't need some slight tweaks to mankind. We need a complete overhaul of the cosmos and the human heart. We need a savior that is outside of creation to come back and save us. These plagues that you see spelled out so poetically and apocalyptically in Revelation 8 are the very judgments that have been coming time and again to mankind over the course of the church age. They are God's measured wrath poured out on a God-rejecting world, calling us to repent from our idolatry and turn back to him, calling us to acknowledge him as creator, provider, providential power, savior, and king, rather than looking to ourselves. Friends, this should cause us great conviction around our sense of entitlement and self-provision, that things just simply come to us because we deserve them. Friends, where do you put your trust and confidence when trials come? Is it in the systems of men? Is it in the minute and finite scientific knowledge of men? Don't hear me as being anti-scientific. Any of you that know me know that I'm an academic and I rejoice in science but it is not our trust. Where do you put your trust and confidence? Do you put it in the provider God? Do we daily thank God for his provision? Do we thank him for the food and shelter, light, water, breath, health, and relationships that we have? Is God the providential power in your life or simply your servant to carry out the desires of your kingdom? Is God the providential power in your life, or is he the simply get-out-of-fire-free card when you die? These four plagues proclaim God's power over the idolatry of mankind, and in so doing, they call all mankind in repentance back to God. But our world has grown callous against our creator, against our provider. And so in his divine mercy and love for his creation, he will do, as Paul noted in Romans, and give us over to further judgment that some might be saved and called to repentance. The next verse back in Revelation 8 does just that, as we see our last point this morning. Three woes warning a rebellious world to repent before our hearts become hardened. Three woes warning a rebellious world to repent before our hearts become hardened. Take a look there at Chapter 8, verse 13. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In between the fourth and fifth trumpets, we have this pause. And John uses the contrast of seeing and hearing again. You'll notice he does this throughout Revelation. He sees and then he hears to call attention to something very important. He looks to see, but then he hears an eagle crying out and saying, woe, woe, woe to the earth dwellers. Because if the first four trumpets were bad and they still didn't get your attention, then you won't want to see what the last three trumpets are all about. Now, some of your Bibles might say angel instead of eagle. And so just a point of clarification here, the words in the Greek for these are easily mixed up when written in the original Greek with uppercase letters. 
And so textual critics believe that a well-meaning scribe saw eagle, thought that it must have been angel, because we're in Revelation, and so he changed it. But the majority of the early manuscripts have it as eagle. And the reason is, is eagles were a harbinger of judgment and death, seen similarly to vultures as birds of prey that happily feast on dead corpses. They were meaning uh, here to cast a vision of judgment. And so it fits well that an eagle is what John sees as he hears a woe three times pronounced over these last three judgments, these last three trumpets. But why the woes? Why not for the first four? They seem pretty apocalyptic. Why are these next ones so terrible? Well, as we'll see over the next few Sundays, these trumpet judgments are slightly different. While the first four are physical judgments that happen the world over and affect both believer and non-believer, these next judgments are spiritual in nature, demonic to be precise, and they will target and affect just the non-believers, those who are not sealed by the mark of the Lamb with the Holy Spirit of God. They are those who belong to the system of this world and rely on the idolatrous worship of the creation rather than relying upon the creator and provider. That is why they are called the earth dwellers, those that dwell upon the earth. Even the progression of the trumpets speaks to this. Notice that the fourth trumpet was one that started to block out the light and replace it with darkness. This is one of the worst judgments of all. Because as Paul said in Romans, eventually Christ will give a person over to their rebellious idolatry and a spiritual darkness and foolishness will overtake them. They will find themselves fully entrenched in the kingdom of darkness, unable to free themselves. Remember what happened to the hearts of those in Canaan and Jericho? Their hearts were melted because they didn't repent. Remember what happened to the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Their hearts were hardened because they didn't repent. To continue to avoid and dismiss or turn away from the announcements of God's judgment will lead to our hearts being given over to a spiritual blindness and darkness that causes such torment and destruction that John hears three woes pronounced in warning. What a heavy set of announcements for those that dwell on the earth. But remember, folks, This book was written to those first century saints that were enrolled in heaven. Revelation is for the church to encourage us in our confidence in God's providence. For even when we encounter even these first few trumpets and the trials that come with them, we know a truth that even those things can never overcome us. For those that are in Christ and have made themselves pure by the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, all of these announcements actually mean something quite different. For those that are in Christ, who do not harden our hearts, these cause us to turn to Christ in worship and thanksgiving. For we are not given over to this darkness and judgment Because we have been saved by the death and resurrection and enthronement of Christ, and we have been given the light of his truth. And if you say, well, Hans, then why does he allow us to go through the hard things of life, the trials and tribulations of these first four trumpets? Well, friends, we are part of the broken creation, and we have been saved out of it. For you to hold God to account for that discomfort is to put yourself on the throne and not allow him to be God. Because when we realize what God has done in saving us out of this judged creation, we will do nothing but give worship and thanks. Remember what we heard from our earlier reading from Colossians 1.13? What did Paul say there? He said, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. The word domain is a kingdom word, a word of authority, and all of us, all of mankind, were subject to the enemy of God, Satan himself. We all walked in darkness, believing we were self-sustaining and gods in our own right. Some of you this morning might be fighting against the very things I am saying because you are a god in your own eyes. But God, in his great mercy sent his son, Jesus the Christ, to die in our place 
and pay the penalty for our rebellion so that we might be ransomed out of the demonic kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. And then God poured out his Holy Spirit so that, as Paul said earlier in Colossians, we have the knowledge of God and his will for us. This was Paul's very prayer for the people that he served. He says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That knowledge is to have our eyes opened so that we might realize by the grace of God that we were rebels in need of forgiveness and salvation. All praise and glory be to God that he provided a way for us to be saved through his son. That even when we encounter apocalyptic disasters in our world, we do not fear because God is with us. We are called to respond then by repenting of our self-worship and our idol worship and instead turn in worship to Christ through the sign of baptism and entrance into the people of God. And from there, we collectively act as a light to the world, calling them out of darkness, declaring for them that we have a provider and creator who loves them, has provided salvation for them, and is calling them to himself. And any trial or difficulty that we encounter is his loving grace calling us out of our self-worship. This should give us, like it gave the early church, great peace in the midst of trials and divine judgment. Unlike Israel, who did not know the triumph and salvation to come at the end of the plagues, we do know that Jesus will return to rule and reign. We have been given assurance of this by his word, and it has been confirmed by his death and resurrection from the grave. The resurrection from the grave promises us that none of these plagues will touch us because we have been given eternal life. And even if death should overtake us, we know that we are in Christ and reconciled to the provider and the creator of the universe. We, above all, should have no fear because of what God has done for us. As our world experiences the chaos we see daily in the news, let's not fall into the trap of fear and anxiety as if we did not know what is happening or what is to come. But let us instead look to Christ as our creator and our provider our comfort and security. And let us go from this place proclaiming that our God reigns and he has provided a way of repentance, forgiveness, and salvation. Chaos does not reign. Our God reigns. And let us be at peace in knowing that God's current judgments announce his providential power and his assured victory. And because of that, we are provided for and because of that, we can walk in the knowledge that his victory is assured. Amen? Amen. Amen.